This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we're going to delve into all aspects of private equity capital investment as it pertains to the emerging health value economy. The impact of investment activity on on our industry cannot be overstated. With the velocity of capital pouring into the health sector, reaching stratospheric proportions, the valuation of private equity deals in the U.S. health sector is nearly $100 billion, a 20-fold increase from 2000 when it was less than $5 billion. Before COVID-19, we were already seeing mass provider consolidation, expansive funding in digital health, and significant M&A activity. And the appetite for capital investment in healthcare has only increased in recent years. The amount of capital pouring into the sector, the velocity to which it's being deployed, is reshaping the landscape and a driving force in the future of value-based care. And this week, you're going to hear from an unabashed Clayton Christensen and Milton Friedman devotee and a convicted believer in the power of markets who will provide unique perspectives on how PE investment will reshape the healthcare industry. Joining us this week is Don McDaniel, the CEO of Canton and Company. Don engages with pioneering healthcare firms across the industry, all striving to win in the new health economy. A true market maker, he's focused on advancing innovation, elevating market positions, and connecting complementary players to disrupt and reshape the industry. Don is a healthcare visionary, a master economist, a serial entrepreneur, and a lover of a good debate. In this episode, he'll provide insight into the continued increase in the appetite of private equity and other institutional investors. We'll discuss whether this interest is good or bad for consumers, patients, providers, payers, and and other stakeholders. He'll also overview the interest level and forecast of investment activity, exploring pros and cons from various stakeholders' perspectives, and consider the implications of such investment on the value movement. If you're a business leader trying to understand current investment trends and whether or not institutional equity actually improves the overall industry health of healthcare, this episode is for you. And if you like what you heard on today's episode and want to learn more about private equity investment and its impact on value-based care, make sure to download the Intelligence Brief released this week by the Institute for Advancing Health Value. So let's hear from the man himself, Don McDaniel, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Don, it's a great privilege to have you on the show this week as a serial entrepreneur, 
and expert healthcare economist, you were the foremost consideration for a podcast guest to guide our listeners on the topic of this week's episode. And I mean, I can think of no one better to provide an informed perspective that marries both investor strategy and execution with value creation. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me, Eric. And boy, you've really set me up for failure. So I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Don, you know, I can't tell you enough. I mean, I I enjoy working with you and I I look to you as really one of the foremost experts, as I said, on the value economy. And I thought a great way to begin our conversation today would be to discuss the macro trends and institutional investing to set the stage for our listeners. Investor activity in healthcare continues to accelerate in unprecedented fashion. The number of healthcare service deals among institutional investors has more than doubled in the last six years with 356 deals in 2015 and a whopping 733 deals in 2021. Investor interest continues to grow along with healthcare spending itself with national spending on health services jumping 9.7% last year, topping 4.1 trillion. And as the ranks of senior Americans grow and the incidence of chronic disease continues to rise, Investor demand in the healthcare sector will continue to remain highly favorable. And there's so many opportunities for investment in such a highly fragmented and uncoordinated in- industry. I mean, we're seeing provider aggregation models, consumer driven healthcare services like outpatient behavioral health, alternative sites of care like retail, telehealth, home care, technology based solutions that are driving digital transformation and care delivery and improved consumer experience. And interestingly, it seems that healthcare investments are also insulated from the macroeconomic shocks and recessionary pressures since multiples on invested capital and healthcare PE investments meaningfully outperform those in other industries during economic downturns, which really bodes well, I think, for continued interest from equity investors. So, Don, I wanted to ask you if you could further illustrate the magnitude of private investment in healthcare, and uh, what are we on in terms of the historical trajectory of institutional investment, and how will these investments reshape the healthcare industry in the years to come? It's a great question. It's a fundamental question, and uh, again, just really happy to be here. I think you know the starting point of this, and you hit a lot of these things on the head. People who know me know that first and foremost, I believe that the system is broken. I'm a, I'm a market guy and, and I really believe in the power of markets. And I think that anytime you isolate industries and particularly an industry this big, a $4 trillion industry, that just underperforms in almost every substantive way that we evaluate. You, st- you got to say to yourself, hey, there's something systemically wrong with this. So the underlying aspect of this what you've described, and I can go a little bit deeper, the investment fervor is really based in the fact that healthcare is, to use a technical term, it's sort of a train wreck or a motor vehicle accident. You know, we we, we don't necessarily want to stop, but we can't help ourselves because it's so mammoth. And the economic opportunities, mostly related, I think, I think most of what drives this in the investment community is just the arbitrage opportunity when, when people from outside of healthcare in particular look and say, geez, you know, $4 trillion growing. I mean, what industries are growing 9%? And 9%, you know, we're in a little bit of a wickedly weird time, Eric, as you know, given 
the back end of the pandemic, what's happening with uh, with inflation, so some other macro factors, and so on and so forth. So we're we're growing even more excessively. But you know, it, it healthcare was rarefied in that it it has consistently grown. Let's say five six percent, or medical cost inflation has grown consistently high for a very long period of time. So the fundamental underpinning of that is that healthcare is inefficient that healthcare is very labor intensive. And I think part of this is, you know, Jim Collins is a, is a favorite of mine. Face the brutal facts, face them with hope. And, but, but the brutal facts are that this is not a necessarily a good industry. It's not a high performing industry. If I think, and the last time I looked at this, Eric, so the listeners will probably keep me honest on this, but if you look, look as an example, if you look at labor productivity since 1990, I think there have been only two industries. Uh, healthcare is one higher ed. <laughs> it's, you know, two places where you and I are both involved very deeply and they're both very dysfunctional. Those two industries, those two segments have had negative labor productivity. What does that mean? That means that healthcare, even with this excessive growth, the way that healthcare has historically grown is by driving more labor, more workforce, so that we're not necessarily making productivity gains. The technology enhancements and gains that you would typically see in other industry sectors, and we have felt, right, tremendous productivity gains in other industries have not really hit us in healthcare. So that's a that's a part of the equation, right? The second part of the equation, it's a really inefficient business. And, and within that notion of inefficiency is inherently safety, right? And, and other factors that drive, you know, what inhibits the, the industry from becoming more efficient and effective. And I tell people all the time, if the airline industry had the safety record of healthcare, literally no one would jump on a plane, right? Because it would be so risky. And we know that these errors in healthcare are unforced errors, right? It's the old tennis term, but uh, these are iatrogenic errors predominantly that are driving bad outcomes. So that's, that's a problem. A lot of this, and this is just more of a personal, well, I think I can make a strong argument, but I think there's an underpinning here, which is we've really not had strong consumer sovereignty in healthcare for, for a very long period of time. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you think about we, we as consumers are really what drives the impact of supply and demand in competitive markets, right? We, we like something, we buy it, a lot of people like it, they buy it more. If we don't like it as much, the signals are that the manufacturer producer should tweak it and change it, or they, you know, they aren't as successful, right? And so that ebb and flow and the notion that we can't really command and control an economy as big as our economy is what's really been behind this basic Smith concept of, you know, the invisible hand. I mean, I would argue since 1965, consumers have not been involved in economic decision-making healthcare. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why. And I think there's a lot of paternalism and there's, I think healthcare is pretentious. I think healthcare is paternalistic. I think that there is a lot of, I know, and you don't know, right? I, uh, I as you know, I, I taught at Hopkins for a long time. And one of the programs I taught, it was an MBA program where you know, 70% of our students were physicians. And the first night of class, I would always say, okay, how much supply-induced demand do you believe in, in that? What's that? Well, how, how much could you as a practitioner influence what the consumer, what the patient buys or what the patient agrees to, even if it wasn't medically appropriate or necessary, right? And, you know, the ones that were honest, which were most of them, would say a lot. So we have this basic issue about this consumer dissonance that drives a lot of inefficiencies in the system that makes it then incredibly attractive 
for investors. And some investors and many maybe are are somewhat naive. They're, the world is littered with cautionary tales of folks who have tried to enter healthcare from outside and and have been rebuffed. I mean, everybody knows about Haven and that effort. Although, you know, in those cases, look, Amazon's not staying away from healthcare. They just decided maybe that wasn't the right vehicle. Um, so there, there are a lot of folks on the outside that sort of fashion themselves as efficiency mavens we're going to enter. And we're seeing that now with retail. We're seeing that with consumer electronics. And there's a whole litany of other examples. But I do think this is going to change things. So anyway, the point is, the economic underpinning of this is, an incredibly inefficient business that is backed by massive tailwind demand. And, you know, you hit the number one thing on the head. I mean, I think that we are staring into the most significant demographic change in the history of our country in and maybe the history of the world in terms of the aging and the impacts that aging is going to have on our healthcare system here and many, many other industries between now and let's say 2050. It's just massive. It impacts the social safety net and the underpinnings of social security. It impacts healthcare and access and delivery and so on and so forth. And at the same time, people's uh, mores and, and the way they approach things are changing. I, I recall about 10 years ago, uh, maybe less, you know, we would work with clients going, taking products to market. And, you know, if there was a cell phone involvement, it was poo-pooed because, you know, seniors don't know how to use cell phones, right? Or there was this thing about Medicaid recipients can't, don't, you know, don't have cell phones or whatever the case may be. All of those things have been repudiated, right? Where patients will never join an MA plan because they've always been an indemnity fee for service products. Well, that's all different now, right? Because we've now got generationally, people have been in those products their whole life. So, so we're going to see, I think, a lot of opportunity for change. We are seeing for sure this combination of, I like to think about it as the precision, personalization, the consumer, the consumers coming back into play. There's a lot of privatization of risk. I mean, I think that Medicare and Medicaid programs, there's no question that the goal of government, federal and state in those cases, government is to create defined contribution programs to get away from being on the hook for a benefit, right? Because that's where the that's where the downside is sort of unlimited. So that's a massive opportunity. And investors that look across these sectors and particularly in services, and they're like, hey, if we could just apply the rules from every other rational competitive industry that we are operating in, we're there. So in summary, as you said, last year, I think was the most significant, it was the the biggest private equity year, I think, in, in history in terms of fundraising and deployment. Healthcare is a massive part of that. We're seeing more and more healthcare investors enter healthcare. And we are seeing, I think, interestingly enough, I'm seeing more and more private equity firms that are either created or shifting to a healthcare-specific strategy, right, where they went from maybe being focused on a couple of different service segments, maybe it was healthcare, maybe it was business services, maybe tech, whatever, and, and somewhat industry agnostic. And now all of a sudden, we're seeing more and more healthcare specific. So part of this issue is that there are very few industries that are big enough where you could literally focus on one and get to the kind of scale and scope you want. So, so that's all 
on the opportunity side and the innovation side, it's all very exciting. I would just remind people also, and we're talking about domestic U.S. predominantly, um, these problems are not endemic to the U.S. These are worldwide problems, regardless of the of the financing system, regard, you know, whether it's single payer or centrally planned or it's a hybrid or whatever. These problems are, are affecting healthcare and people's health all over the world. And so these markets will continue to, to explode. On closing, one last comment, and we won't spend a lot of time, but in terms of where we are right now in early 2022, there is this inflationary push. And I don't think it's dampening necessarily. I think investors are, are thinking more about the value chain, Eric, impacts on their investments related to inflation and some other macroeconomic factors. I don't, it's not going to slow things down at all. But the one thing I w- would say about this is, I'm reminded uh, Michael Porter and and a colleague wrote a piece probably 10 years ago now, and essentially the headline was, it's the cost stupid. And I mean, that wasn't the headline, it was an HBR piece, but, but they basically said no one in healthcare really knows what it costs them to deliver what they're delivering, and that's a real problem. And I think that beca- problem becomes more real in a climate like this, right? And so we're starting to see more focus on analytics, more focus on operating analytics, more focus on cost. If there's going to be risk transference to providers, you have to understand your cost basis and those kinds of things. So generally speaking, much more significant investment, a lot of dry powder. I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but a lot more competition for deals. And it's also forcing some of the investors to rethink their strategy. So uh, a lot of fun. And I like, I think the true north is we can make this industry, right? Some people say this system or the system that's not a system, we can make it a lot better for consumers. Don, thank you for that great perspective on the healthcare landscape. I, I want to go a little bit deeper into the psychology that you've talked about for investors and their motivation and interest in healthcare sector. I mean, you mentioned the arbitrage, the inefficiency, the demographic changes. Obviously, healthcare is an attractive investment target, and it's been that way for some time due to the sector's critical role in the whole economy. Healthcare spending is projected to grow at an average rate annually of 5.4% until 2028, where it will then reach 6.2 trillion. And it's growing faster than the projected gross domestic product during that time. And with every crisis, there's opportunity, right? And healthcare is ripe for disruption. You've mentioned some of that. The smart investors will be able to differentiate between inflated expectations and appropriate pricing by monitoring policy, regulatory and market developments and evaluating opportunities in the context of disruption. And the key disruption that should be on the minds of all investors right now is value-based care. And you kind of hinted at that as you ended the last comments. The post-pandemic area is really a tremendous opportunity for value creation in healthcare with industry experts and policymakers agreeing that COVID-19's only emphasized the need for significant payment and delivery transformation. And it really showcased the advantages of prospective non-fee-for-service-based alternative payment models, you know, coupled with regulatory flexibilities, technological innovations, and, and cultural shifts to fast-tracked adoption. As we're thinking about the comments that you set us up so well with and why investors are interested in healthcare, how does that interest intersect with the emerging value economy as as you started to speak about. Can you go further into that as as they're leveraging investments to drive sustainable and transformation costs and outcomes? 
That's an unbelievable soliloquy, right? I think you hit a lot of really good things there. So a couple of things just to preface this. Number one, I think my last data point was, I think Credit Suisse had a report in, maybe it was mid-year 21, but their notion is that only about seven or 8% of all payments today in healthcare payments going to providers are, you know, real value-based care. When I say real value-based care, like risk-based, global payment-based, you know, not fee-for-service foundational or, or, or whatever, to your point. So number one, we're still very much in the early innings, right? You think about who buys healthcare in this country, and it's essentially government is about 50%. We have a very pluralistic system. And then private insurers and uh, other entities and individuals are buying the rest of that, right? So you, you think about the headwinds or tailwinds around what's going to change the payment modality, specifically, Daniel, to your point, how providers are getting paid, you have to look at, at, at those segments. I think there's no question, and you know, CMMI is doubling down on this. I think there's no question on the government payment side, think about all government payments writ large, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, VA, active military, and then a series of other initiatives that are sort of health status seeking, that their MO is, as I just notion of think about our Think about retirement, right? The history of retirement accounts. You know, we we got people got pensions in this country for a very long time. They got pensions from even private companies. And the notion of a pension was when you retire or depending on when you retire, we're going to pay you X dollars every month or every year. And the onus was on the employer to make sure they hit that number. And so the notion of moving from pension to a 401k is, the employer wants to take some of that full funding risk out of that. Some of that is the accounting rules change, like how we account for unfunded pension liabilities, right? Example, and started hurting companies, but they started saying, no, no, we shouldn't take all of the risk on the outcome. We should be contributing to your desired outcome. And we want you to self-direct or, you know, we want the individual to be, uh, you know, sort of in the driver's seat. I think we're very much seeing that maybe not, at the same level of individuality, but I think that we're seeing that same concept play out, particularly with Medicare and Medicaid. So even a couple of years ago, Daniel, I know you and I have talked, you know, the thought was, hey, 50% Medicare advantage penetration by, you know, the end of the decade, 2029, 2030. And even in the last couple of years, we've seen that accelerate. And now, you know, we could see you know, high 50s or higher Medicare Advantage penetration. And there's a number of reasons why that happens, which we don't need to necessarily go into right now. But as, as that happens, what is Medicare Advantage? Medicare Advantage is the government fixing the price, not fixing in a legal way, but locking in a price negotiation with a private health insurer. And so they've now transferred that risk for that population. So right there, the government is moving the risk to the payer. And now we're seeing, as you know, more and more payers are starting to think about, does it make sense for us to do another transference of some or a lot of this risk to provider organizations? We're also seeing provider organizations, and a lot of them are private equity backed and funded or VC backed and funded. And I think it's, we'll talk probably about a little bit of the the bad image, black eye type of dynamic around some of this institutional investing, but you know, this is an area where institutional investment, private investment doesn't get enough positive mojo because, you know, it really funds and drives a lot of this innovation. But, you know, my, my argument has been for a very long time, look at primary care as an instance. I think that 
Historically, primary care practitioners in this country have consumed about 6% of all spending in healthcare. So we've been paying PCPs 6%, right? But they have an impact on a much bigger percentage of the overall spend, okay? So in a payment model where you're only ever going to pay the primary care physician 6%, there starts to become this question of what incentive do they have to really try to drive the alignment of efficiency and outcomes, right? And so I think that's a concept that's being evolved and developed in the minds of physicians. They oftentimes are lacking capital. They have great ideas. They have a plan. They can demonstrate and emulate evidence-based practice and those kinds of things, but they need some support, right? So, so that's, that's an element of, of this for sure. When I think about value-based care, I, I sort of hate the term because like a lot of other terms, perfectly good terms, I'm thinking meaningful use is one of those, like it gets neutered in healthcare and, we, and, and it loses all value. But when I, when I think about value-based care, Daniel, I think about it very consistently with how you've positioned it, which is to say, I think about, you know, value-based care is multidimensional. So what does it mean to providers? In my mind, it means for provider organizations, they're striving to provide a higher level of consumer-focused care, right? The notion of value is what we've all come to expect in those other industries, which is, are we really doing the right things? Or are we really serving the ultimate customer? I have a, and I think this is the way you view it, I have a good connotation of when I think of value-based care, I think of a certain, as an example, a certain business model that is value-based care. That business model focuses on getting people what they need when they need it. That business model focuses on when the people have really acute needs, we get them all of the really high quality acute help we can, but we don't overplay the acute card. That business model places a premium on trying to get people to change and improve lifestyle, right? To improve health and, and, and so on and so forth. And all we're really talking about, this is no different than in other walks of life, is aligning the economic system behind that system. The other thing about fee-for-service that I would say that is really troublesome is that, and I've argued for a long time, you know, Medicare and fee-for-service Medicare have really been more of the regulator than a payment modality, right? So as Medicare goes, everybody else goes. And we all know examples, if you're in healthcare, a bunch of examples of where with, you know, sort of one swipe of the pen, we've dramatically either improved or reduced the viability and sustainability of even certain sectors of the industry. If you think about the Balanced Budget Act in 97, I think there were a thousand nursing home chains that ended up going out of business because there was a change in reimbursement. So through the investor lens, I think this concept of value-based care is very much front and center. And they're thinking about this, Daniel, I think, through the lens of value means really, in their minds, ultimately, some kind of global payment construct, right? Prepaid global payment, percentage of premium, where the economics are very lined. I think that's how most investors think about value-based care, value-based payments when they see this. There are still lots of investments, and, and this is another pet peeve of mine, there are lots of investments in just building better mousetraps in models that are mixed or still overly fee-for-service. There are lots of investments in physician roll-ups. You know, there are lots of investments in tech-enabled services that may or may not rely on the, the underlying value-based care thesis, but there are opportunities. And, you know, part of my 
argument is we should be talking less about value-based care and we should be talking more about can we build great businesses that drive all of the important outcomes that people expect can we improve health status can we improve reliability can we improve safety can we reduce variation and you know we're not just talking about the variation that's driven by clinical science, which is sort of hard. Let's just eliminate, you know, misses. Let's just eliminate, oops, I forgot. Let's eliminate lack of coordination, right? So so let's build better businesses. And feels to me, Daniel, and I, I don't know how you feel, it almost feels like we've gotten into this mode where value-based care is the white knight and fee-for-service is evil, you know, and, and, and I don't think that's the case. I mean, I think that we're always going to have elements of fee-for-service payment. There's a lot of value in tracking what we're doing on an episodic basis. The imprimatur, though, is people should only pay for things that marginally benefit them and significantly marginally benefit them. So that's the other part of healthcare, which is when you have a third party payer all the time, there's a lot of people call it economists call it flat of the curve medicine. You know, you, you have a very low bar to prove that some service is of value. And, and, you know, we see that in end of life and we see that in a bunch of other uh, situations. So my notion is, you know, how do you preserve a system that is consumer oriented and is, is very sort of consumer centric from a choice perspective, but at the same time where we align the incentives. I think investors are focused on value-based care because of the efficiency. I think that, and we hear this when we talk to capital firms and private equity firms, they are very interested in things like, okay, what's the reimbursement risk? So because the system is so regulated, that swipe of the pen could really impact things. What's the chance that there's going to be a swipe of the pen? What's the chance we had a client a couple of weeks ago that said, hey, tell us what's happening around DCE, you know, direct care entities, because there was a lot of noise about that. Lo and behold, guess what, right? We just get this pronouncement from CMS that they're changing that program. That That's an, an investor view of the world. Remember, the starting point is, I have a concept, I have a thesis, I have a theme, I think it makes sense. I think that, that this is going to be a, we can aggregate around a business that can really drive value and improve things and so on and so forth, what are the macro forces that could shut us down? Like, how do we de-risk that? So reimbursement is one of those areas. Well, you know, in a prepaid model, there's a lot less regulation, right? Because you can't use the fee-for-service payment system as the regulator, which is often, you know, which which has often been done. So to summarize, I would say, look, I think that we are, we're down the path. The term that I use for value this notion of ultimately ascribing to or getting to some form of global payment and risk transference, I think that is very much, you know, where we're going. And I would say, you know, opportunistically, Daniel, the the companies that are raising capital and the companies that are becoming so attractive are the ones that have figured out how they make a real dent in that. I mean, if you look at Lavongo as an example, you know, focused on diabetes, had really a core understanding of, I recall Regina Hertzlinger writing about focus factories. A focus factory for diabetes doesn't mean that all you know and identify is the is the diabetic condition. It 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 includes and incorporates all of the comorbidities around diabetes. So Lavongo started there. They said, how can we be an early identifier? How can we track? How can we measure? It's both the the pre-work and the post-work. That's a value-based care mindset, right? Because it, we should reward investment in prevention. We should reward investment in early identification. I think we should be doing those things 
with consumers more in mind and consumer engagement has been tough. Somebody told me something the other day, uh, a client, we were talking about data and we were talking about the value of, of consumer data, retail data as a predictive uh, source of identifying disease. And they were saying that there was some, you know, grocery store data, right? And they looked at, they could identify patients that had diabetes before the patient was diagnosed, which is fascinating, right? To me, you know, completely, you know, social determinants data, not healthcare data at all. And was the early indicator. You may have heard, I don't know, Daniel, but I think it was a couple of years ago, you know, Target had this data targeting program and they were, they were driving analytics and they were identifying their shoppers, you know, they thought they were pregnant with, you know, sort of indication of pregnancy. And they did an outbound campaign to those members, uh, to those shoppers. And a lot of the shoppers found out they were pregnant because of this letter they got from Target, which didn't create a great, you know, sort of PR event, you know, for Target. But the point there is coming back to what I was saying is this whole diabetes thing, this same person said, yeah. And what we figured out was by the time we identify the trends, the shopping trends that lead us to believe the patient is diabetic, they've probably had diabetes for at least four or five months. So we start to think about, okay, how can we align incentive around getting that information sooner and then driving it to the right place? So I think it's, it's, it's all of those things, uh, Daniel and above it's, you know, any industry with $4 trillion that's growing 10%, you know, you're going to have a whole heck of a lot of attractiveness there. And then I would say the last thing about this to go deeper is I think what value-based care is rendering now is a more holistic view of health. So now people in healthcare, and I think the recognition of the impact of social determinants and other drivers are starting to ask questions. Should be investing in food? Should we be investing in housing security? Should we be investing in, you know, you name it, lo loneliness prevention, right? There's this notion that all of these factors, many of which are not medical at their core or driving cost exposure. I think that's a good thing. You know, I think that's that's going to only help us improve people's lives. So, Don, I wanted to talk more about the payer and provider community as it relates to institutional investment. I'll provide a little commentary on both for our listeners. I mean, on the payer side, you have a, a segment of in industry that's loathed by the average American citizen. I mean, a recent Harris poll found that 16% of adults believe that health insurance companies put patients above profits. And with insurance so misaligned, I mean, there's several startups looking to shake up the industry by reining in healthcare costs and creating a more consumer-centric experience. I mean, many of these upstarts have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and billion-dollar-plus valuations. You have the likes of Oscar Health, Clover, Bright Health, Collective Health, Devoted Health, and they're all tech-driven, and they're health insurance players that are really trying to create value for the employer market in Medicare Advantage patients. And on the provider side, we continue to see an investor land grab for physician practices. I mean, one in five physician transactions involve primary care practices, as you mentioned earlier, and that's a signal that investors are banking on profits that are to be made in the shift to value-based care. And a big driver of this is groups that are taking full-risk Medicare Advantage, where we, we see practices getting acquired by investors where they're paying anywhere between five to $10,000 per MA life. And meanwhile, PE firms are rolling up high margin specialty practices like ophthalmology, orthopedics, derm, anesthesiology. So with all that going on, Don, why do you think providers and payers are increasingly open to institutional investment? And will PE-backed health plan startups 
ever really reach critical mass and market share. And I guess lastly, for the provider segment, will partnership with private equity be the primary lifeline for those groups positioning themselves to take full downside risk? Fundamentally, I, I think, again, this is another one of these very positive things that people tend to overlook. I love what you said, you know, loathing payers. I think payers get a bad knock also. Again, what if, what are we asking payers to do? And and they're trying to play that role, number one. Number two, I think if you look at certainly the publicly traded payers, it's not like they're making excessive margins, right? I think the average publicly traded payer is probably generating somewhere between 3 and 7% EBITDA. So so it's not like they're it's a cash cow. It's a very dynamic thing. The provider side, I think what this capital does is it really incents the innovators to think differently. And I really believe that at the heart, and certainly I've been very involved as you have, Eric, and we've both done a lot of work and will continue to do work in physician organizations. I am a big believer that physicians have to be at the center of the set of solutions that we use to make this better, a better business. I think physicians are predisposed to really wanting to do the right thing. I firmly believe that I, you know, like in anything else, there are some actors that have different incentives, but, you know, I think physicians in particular, there's a reason why they went through all of that pain and hassle. And, and by the way, it wasn't just because of the payoff at the end of the day and, and particularly primary care physicians, right? So why would they want capital? Well, they feel like they've built or they understand or they can build a better mousetrap, but they also know what they don't know and they don't have the capital to build the scale to be able to do that appropriately. And they start to look around and there are some signals around them of people that they respect and trust, whether that's in the the media are a little bit further ahead or they've gone to a conference or they actually know people in their markets that have not just, you know, said, hey, let's get money for the sake of getting money and quote unquote getting rich, but let's take some money and try to deploy a better model. We've seen a lot of those models. And I think we're in the first inning of the innovation opportunity around primary care in, in particular. And, and, and especially I'll talk about in a second, but, you know, innovation in, in physician group in particular, you know, you always have this ebb and flow issue of if folks are consolidating, aggregating the industry, what does that do to prices and access and all that other stuff? But I think it's still relatively nascent. If you looked at the, in the overall scheme of things, like from a, like an HHI federal trade commission perspective, we're, you know, we're not anywhere close to there. I mean, and just to take a shot again at, at my hospital friends, and I'm a recovering hospital administrator, I don't think I could identify one single hospital combination that's led to better outcomes, better prices, and better customer patient satisfaction. So it's not like, and we continue to see hospital consolidation. There's none of this discussion about that, right? So I think that's going to continue. And I think that, that the primary care emphasis, Eric, is, is rooted in a mental model. And I've been challenging people to think differently because I fell into this trap or I fall into this trap. I grew up in the business in the 90s and the business model and my mental model was HMO, primary care gatekeeper model. So the notion that the patient always has to be attached, even in newer systems, patient is attached to a primary care physician. And that sort of becomes the basis for for care and treatment. The PCP is the quarterback, all of that stuff. But moreover, also if you're going to take global risk, it starts with the PCP. And I think that's true. But I've been reminded by a number of my friends in retail that younger generations don't care as much about that. That's not their mental model and that omni-channel could really affect that. So, you you, you know, I, I've heard a stat that I've been using that in the last year, uh, or maybe it was 21, but 
you know, 50% of all American adults did not have a primary care encounter, physical or virtual. Now you think about that, and I think that trend is growing. You're like, hey, maybe that whole model of the PCP attachment is, is, you know, is starting to change. But anyway, slow and ebbing and so on and so forth, PCPs will still be very important. I think the feeling of the specialty, I think more than anything, is if you think about what's happened to specialists, let's just do a time series from OO, from the aught. You know, it's like, okay, certain specialties made more money. There's always been this sort of caste system changes in reimbursement year to year based on the volume and the utilization. And, and I think hopefully we've learned you can't change behavior after the fact. The notion of damping down the fee schedule doesn't really create all of the outcomes you want. But, you know, I think about cardiology as one example where there was a massive run of cardiologists, independent cardiologists to hospital employment, right? Because of the, the payment. The payment was better if you were attached with a hospital and the hospital could share that payment. So now, coming full circle. Now you've got investors that are saying, hey, what if we brought, and cardiology is one example, what if we brought cardiology back out into the community in a more well-funded business model? Remember, one of the downfalls, one of the reasons why the cardiology went was because they were small business people that didn't have capital access, right? So now you bring them back out, you build the tools and the accoutrement around them to be able to support that kind of practice. And that's really attractive because that site of service differential is massive, right? If you, I don't need to know anything other than site of service to tell you if something is way more expensive than it should be. And now we know, you know, 25 or 30% of everything that's done in institutions can clinically be done in, in non-institutional settings. So, so I think we're at, you know, we're in batting practice, if you will, on the specialty side. And I think the play out of that will be mixed models, some fee for service, some volume dri driven stuff will certainly continue. I think we'll start to see sub cap, RVU cap, a bunch of these things that we used before that were very immature then, they're still immature, we'll, we'll figure that out. But I think that what we're girding for, Eric, is a system that is moving away from institutional settings, right? So how do we build the infrastructure and think about this writ large, e ERP, logistics supply chain to support care in places other than institutional settings. That's a overarching megatrend. Last comment on the payers. I like these. Some of the analysts, equity analysts are calling these like a digital payer. I think any innovation is good because, you know, you know, Eric and Daniel, if you look inside of a health plan, in most cases, if you look inside a traditional health plan in the US, man, it's like 1960s, you know, all over again. A lot of the infrastructure is dated. There's very little interoperability. There's still very old systems. A lot of the systems are manual. And funny enough, a lot of what has limited global-based payments has been the payer's inability to really facilitate some kind of global payment, the technical capability. Those upstarts that you talked about, they're all trying different things. I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff. I think we're going through a discovery period. Again, this is pre-first inning stuff a, a little bit. But you know, I just read a report on insurance industry uh, innovation. I mean, you think about as an example, and maybe these don't play everywhere as well, but think about the individual market, which has been in most insurance product spaces, the individual market for that product is completely automated. You don't even need a human intervention. So we're going to see insurance advancements, innovations that will start to attack some of those things. On the MA side, it's still very much a people process technology place, but these digital payers are smart because they're using analytics to identify things like what supplemental benefits could we add to really drive things. We have a client that's in the food space, right? You know, food is health, food is medicine. 
okay, but what's really triggering the opportunity is that we're now seeing MA payers who are choosing to pay a supplemental food benefit. So I like this for, for all of the innovation. And, and the last thing I would say as it relates to to institutional investment, Eric and Daniel, is that although the hold cycles have lengthened, I think it's unfair a little bit like this notion of the PE firm buys and flips. There's obviously a cycle. That cycle is tied to what their investors are expecting. But the cycle is also a little bit good because it sort of clears the system. Stuff that doesn't get traction gets wiped out. And so if these companies aren't adding value in some time horizon, then they're, they're going to get wiped out. If that investor doesn't get the value long-term. That doesn't mean somebody else won't get the value, but the reality is there's a lot of performance pressure on these companies to validate and prove what they can do. And I think that's really healthy in our economy. Don, I want to circle back to a comment and uh, it's, it's the many people within and outside the industry really don't view private investment trends as a positive development. You know, I mean, you talked about the black eye. And for example, late last year, the American College of Physicians issued a strongly worded position paper recommending regulatory actions to actually limit the role of private investments in healthcare for what they fear is the excessive influence of for-profit companies and corporatization in the healthcare market. And they urge for tighter accounting for hospital tax exemptions and community benefits, uniform fair pricing and billing and collection policies. And this viewpoint on investor-owned health systems correlates with the JAMA study published in January that showed how they provide a higher amount of wasteful, low-value healthcare services. And then you've got the criticism about the influence of private equity on medical practices relative to their clinical decision-making, their prices, and patient access. All of this culminated in a superheated political debate that caused the entire restructuring of the direct contracting payment model. And Progressive lawmakers were very concerned about the influence of private equity in the DC model, since the lion's share of the DCEs in the first cohort were attached to private equity-sponsored groups like Agilon Health, Oak Street Health, Clover Health, and One Medical. So now we're in this, as you mentioned, this space with the newly announced ACO REACH model, where at least 75% of each participating ACO's governing body must be controlled by providers. And I could go on about the criticisms of private equity and healthcare, but I want to know, is, is all the concern about the undue influence and corporatization of medicine by PE investors really warranted? I mean, what, how do you respond to that? Where do you encourage caution? And then, you know, where do you promote that it's the right direction? You know, this is a tough question to answer. And, and also, I should just say, I think it's important, Daniel, that the disclaimer is, you know, I have a very well-developed thinking about this that's evolved over a long period of time, and I have a lens, right? And so I have a bias, you know, because I really believe in the power of this capital. I also, because of my career in teaching, have been forced to do probably a little more research than others have. And, and I, I'm very skeptical and cynical about you know, some of these calls and, and uh, you know, and certainly in political environments, I'm, I'm always on all sides of the equation. You have to sort of peel the onion and ask the question where it's coming from and why. There is a lot of skepticism and scrutiny around private equity. And I would say, generally speaking, and if we look at the, and, and I don't think people have done this, if you look historically at the track record of private equity, and what it's created and funded in terms of innovation. Think about fundamentally whether you, you know, whether you like, you know, Google or Facebook or Hewlett Packard or, you know, I could go on and on and on, right? But I mean, when we look at at what 
the infusion of private capital from folks that are taking risks tied to their perception about how a business could evolve. And it starts obviously even more risky at the, at the venture capital level. Where would we be if we didn't have that private infusion of capital into the system, right? I, and I think you could do probably a, a, a pretty balanced view of, okay, let's weigh the pros and cons of that. In, in healthcare, I'm always chagrined by this because in particular, I think about the hospital world. I think 90% of the hospital beds in the US are not-for-profit hospital beds, meaning they're controlled by not-for-profit systems. And for any of us in this uh, audience that have been around particularly larger, middle market or larger not-for-profit hospital systems, I think you'd be very hard pressed to say that that not-for-profit status is anything more than just the tax status. How does that system really operate day to day? Do they really operate? Is there something different about, you know, their mission orientation and so on and so forth? And there's a lot of research that's been done around this. And I think it comes out on a bunch of different sides. I mean, I, I know for a very long period of time, as an example, and, you know, this was sort of near and dear to me for a couple of reasons. I was looking at hospital contributions to uncompensated care, and charity care, and found that for significant periods of time, HCA, you know, sort of the, the classic for-profit hospital business, HCA was driving more uncompensated care in a lot of its markets than the not-for-profits that occupied those markets, including religious not-for-profit sponsors. So you sort of say, okay, wait a second here. You know, it's a little bit of the Milton Friedman in me. Is this really part of the business model that, you know, to be a good corporate citizen and to be in the space, you've got to provide that kind of care. Is there really something differential in the value? So that's a whole discussion that's connected to, right, but un unrelated to this. But I think that if you look at the performance of hospitals, there's a lot to question about the performance of hospitals and the structure. I'm very close. We do a lot of work with, with FQHCs. You look at the structure of FQHCs. It's a 30 plus billion dollar seg of our healthcare system right now. Absolutely positively needed. A lot of them are doing God's work. It's been the safety net provider. There's a federal mandate that at least 51% of the boards of the FQHCs have to be patients of the FQHC. And so I've been in front of those boards. I've been on those boards. I've seen those boards. And I wonder, does that mandate make sense? Are we putting the right people to maximize the value of the FQHC? Are we putting the right people in the seats? Okay, so all of that being said, that's sort of ad hoc uh, commentary. I am a really big believer in the need for both innovation and growth capital. I think we need it in healthcare more than anything else. I think a lot of these calls, I feel like they end up becoming very self-serving. By, by the way, you know, like the American College of Physicians, very interesting. There are a number of successful private equity-backed organizations that have massive physician equity ownership in the model. So, are we suggesting that physicians can't make good choices about, you know, choosing their partners? Are we suggesting that the physicians that are in a private equity backed business, are they greedy? Are they Machiavellian? Are they nefarious? I mean, what are we saying about this? And then the last thing I would just say, Daniel, and again, I think this is going to be an open debate for a long time. I'm thankful for PE. I think that when PE makes a mistake or the, or the model doesn't really resonate, the, the business goes away. So that's number one. There is this clearing function. I think the movement, your earlier question about value-based care, you know, something else that I would add to that commentary is 
I think what value-based care is doing is also raising the stakes around how we view value. Daniel, you know what I mean? Like people are becoming more aware. They're asking questions. What is the hospital acquired infection rate? What's happening with folks that are admitted? How are you dealing with this? How are you solving that? Why are you making me the consumer when I'm sick, schlep my butt out of bed and come to you? These these things are evolving. And I think we're going to see better transparency and, and higher visibility. And then you think about all of the investments that folks are making around these transparency tools, around reducing variation, those kinds of things. So my belief on this is, look, I think that those people taking shots, there's a little bit of a glass house dynamic. And I would say until you've contributed to making the industry better, better meaning better serves consumers, safer, more visibility, stop treating the patient like they're stupid, right? All of these factors, then you really are barking up the wrong tree. In every walk of life, in every segment, there are bad actors. Are there investors that are ridiculously product profit motivated? Absolutely, there are. I have a core belief. My definition of capitalism, and it's sort of my makeup is that bad actors, even if they're making money, don't generally last for a long time. Now, you know, everybody can think of counterexamples, but I think it's very hard for businesses that have impure motivations to survive long-term. And I think the market's going to take care of them. So so I'm, I'm thankful for this. I think we would be in a world of hurt. I mean, we're in a world of hurt in the sense that we've attracted this investment. We would be in a really bad spot if we somehow took regulatory action to try to limit uh, investment. I, the last thing I'll just say on this, and I recall a couple of years ago, I think it was during the Obama administration, but there was a prohibition against physicians owning hospitals because the notion is, you know, that's the fox guarding the hen house and there's a whole inducement dynamic and so on and so forth. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about the performance of a lot of the prior hospitals that had physician owned or had a, an equity syndication with physician ownership. Those hospitals tended to be better performers. Now, I'm not saying every one of them, but okay, let's understand why they were better performers, right? Instead of just sort of indicting everybody based on the perception. So this is all part of, Daniel, also, I would say we have a massive information asymmetry problem in healthcare in general, meaning that there's just not a lot of visibility and transparency to facts. And we have to really drive every day for facts. And I think private equity drives it. I think the financial cycle, the capital cycle forces things open. Well, hey, Don, I wanted to bring us back to value-based care and the role that PE investments playing there. And I can't help but think of that Rahm Emanuel quote about never letting a crisis go to waste. And clearly we have a crisis. The The stats on healthcare is just ridiculous. I mean, $4 trillion in spend, 20% of GDP, more than twice per capita as the number two country in the world, outcomes that aren't so good, disparities among racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines – 34% of overall healthcare spend in the system that's wasted due to duplicative services, unnecessary care, fraud, and so forth. And then much of the horizontal consolidation among hospitals and other providers and business arrangements in the supply chain, I mean, has resulted in higher costs. And, and a lot of reports are showing that. And companies that offer scalable solutions that reduce health costs while improving user experience are really attractive to PE investors. And we're seeing that in some of the current investment trends. So as we think about this race to value in our country, clearly CMS is throwing down the gauntlet. I mean, they've stated that, you know, there's this goal of having every Medicare fee-for-service beneficiary in an accountable care relationship by 2030. And of course, it's anyone's guess 
on when we will reach critical mass with value-based payment, but it seems like we're on the right trajectory, especially with COVID-19 serving as a catalyst for change. So I just wanted to ask you, I mean, what's your bet on the timing of the greater adoption and value in healthcare? I mean, where are we going with this value movement? It's a great question. And I wish I had a crystal ball. I wouldn't be spending time with you guys right now. I'd be in, on some island or whatever, but <laughs> but a couple things. Number one, COVID was an inducer, right? But not the creator of the opportunity, right? All of these things were in motion. I think about workforce changes in the gig economy. I think about the move to, to distributed or virtual care, right? And there were a lot of coming back to Ram's comment, you know, you think about the COVID catastrophe, well, it, it forced by necessity, like, okay, let's do virtual stuff and let's validate. And I think a lot of people thought that things could be done, but we were limited again by the payment regulator, right? So if the folks paying the providers didn't agree to pay for something, then it didn't get done. And, you know, you look historically at, at primary care, I think you make a strong argument that we've not paid for soft support around care management and assisting consumers through their journey. And so guess what? We haven't gotten, you sort of get what you incent, right? So a couple of things about this number. And I think right now what's happening with inflation, with costs and stuff like that, this is just going to accelerate the trend to risk. The other thing about, and when I say risk, you know, Eric, I really mean, you know, global budgets. I think that the optimal or a preferred model for disruption and innovation is tied to some kind of global payment. And I think that's only getting further validated. You lay on top of that anytime we start capping budgets, which is essentially what happens when we move to Medicare Advantage or we move manage Medicaid, right? Because in essence, the risk is moving from the government entity that has the sort of open-ended ability to raise revenue through taxes to a private business where there's a profit and loss motivation. So we're capping the budget. They're going to force that economic dynamic, the economic reality downstream. And then that's going to, I think, really force people to say, hey, are we really, number one, are we serving people the right way? Are we doing everything that we can? Do we need to see somebody six times a year? Does it need to be a physical? I'm a big believer in, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we should probably stop doing. There's a lot of unnecessary care. And if you think about the unnecessary care, think about the pretense of all of the support, the admin support around unnecessary care. So I think we are in agreement with you that we're moving there. I don't know how quickly we'll get, I quoted seven or 8%, you know, will it take us another couple of years to go to, you know, to double that number or could it happen faster? I sort of am voting on happen faster. I think that by 2030, we'll have a lot more payments at risk. Again, another outcome of private equity's quest for return is that they're going to continue to chase assets in healthcare that can prove ROI. One of the big ways that organizations, whether it's a health services org or a payer or health tech or med tech or assistive, you know, one of the easiest ways to demonstrate value is when you're operating in a global budget situation and you, you can increase value and reduce costs, right? The scorekeeping is easy. And so I think we're going to see more of that. I think it's going to be pushed by private capital. And I, and I, I think we're on, on that path. What I'm hoping is this notion of value-based care becomes less about, n number one, another problem in healthcare, part of the issue is, you know, when you can't define results, desired results and outcomes, and you can't quantify them, it, it becomes, you know, you resort to process measures. I mean, that's why 
you know, if you think about high tech, I mean, most of the high tech incentives were tied to process. Most of the, you know, the physicians using meaningful use and all the MIPS macro stuff, it was tied to process. How many of these did you do? How many patients did you talk to? Those aren't the right measures, right? So as the system moves to more of a results orientation, that's what I'm hopeful, you know, that we're going to see. And I think we're seeing investment in tech and digital and analytics, you know, that, that, that are driving that. And then I'll, I'll say finally, you know, because we have a window into this, I do think that there are some, I call them insurgents, predominantly retailers, but there are other segments that are entering. And initially, they maybe got smacked around a little because they didn't understand the history or the historical context, but they could be incredibly disruptive. You know, we could see things that we couldn't have thought of in terms of models changing. And I think that's a good thing, you know, so I think we could see a dramatically different system. So we need the investment capital is the lifeblood. It's the forcing function. It's the innovation driver. We need it. Don, I really have enjoyed this conversation with you today. Uh, personally, I'm grateful for all of your valuable insights and, and I'm sure our listeners will be as well. And I'd like to wrap up today by just talking with you about your thoughts on the new entrants that are really shaking things up in the healthcare industry. In the advent of consumer-centric retail-based care delivery, we're seeing these new entrants with big brands and vast resources causing disruption. In recent years, the role of retail health, for example, has grown beyond the co-location of clinics and pharmacies. We've got many large retails now expanding their care delivery practices to include full-service health centers, telehealth offerings, and home delivery of pharmaceuticals. I mean, you've got retailers like Walmart, CVS, Amazon, Walgreens, and Target, and they're all pursuing a healthcare strategy. And the opportunity to bring consumerism to the forefront in healthcare has never been more promising. These retail companies are looking to deliver consumer-centric innovation in a way that the traditional healthcare system has been unable to do. In addition to the provision of this high-touch technology-enabled primary care delivered in existing brick and mortar facilities that are highly convenient and familiar to patients, these companies have also begun to leverage other assets like online platforms, robust supply chains, and delivery infrastructures, and of course, access to really large amounts of capital to grow their healthcare offerings. I'd like your perspective on the new entrants and how much are you seeing of these non-traditional players entering the industry and what's motivating them and what's the likelihood of their impact? This is maybe the most exciting part for me on, on a couple of levels, Dan. One level is, again, I think there's a lot of value in having people that haven't been stuck in the mental model that is healthcare. That's where I'm stuck. You know, I hate to say it. And I try to think of myself as a global thinker, but I find myself all the time resorting back to the conventional wisdom, you know, how it's done in healthcare. And I had a friend say to me once, like, uh, you know, ran a hospital. He's like, I, I need, I have a supply chain issue. I need to find the best hospital in supply chain. And I sort of laughed and I said, I think that's an oxymoron. I don't think there is a best anything in healthcare. If you want the best supply chain, who's the best in supply chain? Go and talk to them. And furthermore, if you want the best finance leader, why are you only hiring people from healthcare finance? They might not be the best, right? So I think that's starting to evolve. 
I think the definition of health is broadening and the definition of health is broadening in a way that also includes, Dan, enhanced economics. So remember I was talking earlier and you're well-versed in this notion of social determinants and how much they impact care, but you start to think about all of the money that's spent holistically around a healthcare ecosystem that includes, are we feeding people or people feeding themselves the right way? Do they have the right kind of housing and shelter? Are they socially isolated? You know, whatever those things are. And there are dollars attached with all of those things. You know, there's existing spend and there's projected spend and all of those things, which you can really become, you know, you can really think innovatively if you start to think about, let's start with, you know, the individual and we're focused on their health status, but let's pull in not just the health spend, but the housing spend that, you know, all of these other things, let's pull in all of the other support capabilities that are in that community or ecosystem around them. So I think that's something that's exciting. We're having very good fortune of working with a number of these these new entrants, these insurgents, as I've talked about. And you named, you know, several of the key categories. And there are some bellwether things happening, but you know, retailers, I think a lot of retailers are recognizing that, you know, just basic assets like data and understanding of flow, workflow, consumer flow, you know, through their businesses is critical. Food stores would certainly fall into that. We're seeing the major food chains think very proactively about healthcare. And I think historically, thinking about healthcare meant, let me go develop a, a relationship with the community hospital. We're going to just basically co-market. That's out the window, right? And workflow is everything, okay? So, if I'm walking through the food store and I happen to wear glasses and my glasses are scratched, this is a true story. And I'm very frustrated right now because I have to go get an eye exam because my eye exam is old. Now, not to mention the fact that I don't think that I should be required to get a new eye exam. I should be able to buy glasses, whatever I want, but that's a, that's a different regulatory moat discussion. But if I can walk through the food store and all of a sudden it becomes very easy for me, somehow they facilitated me checking off another box on my to-do list in my workflow wow, that's that's a big deal, right? So I think that the non-traditionals are thinking that way. Remember, you know, even the sickest among us, God forbid, are, you know, spending less than 5% of their lives, probably significantly less in front of a clinician or at a health episode. Even the most chronic among our population are probably spending 95 or more percent of their time not dealing with healthcare. So the question is in workflow, you start to think about this and all of these entrants are focused on this. You're seeing significant investments. You know, Best Buy has, their strategy is pretty clear. They want to be the organization that supports aging in place. They've made a number of investments in assets that support surveillance and remote telemetry and, and those kinds of things. You talked about Walmarts and Walgreens. Walgreens has the deal with, with, with Village. So obviously a still big a primary care vendor. All of the stationary store players, the bricks and mortar is a double-edged sword. It's sort of like, okay, people are using bricks and mortar a lot less now. I get that. But at the same time, the flip side is if you have an established distribution channel of stores, then you start to think about that's a fixed cost. And what more can I do in that distribution channel? So that's a big, big set of things. And people want to be able to, to blend things together, to check boxes, right? Uh, so I think we're going to see a lot more movement in this vein. I think we're going to see some continued non-traditional entrance. I, my favorite thing right now is telling people that I think the fastest growing segment of residential construction is 
retrofitting houses for seniors to age in place. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty exciting, right? So in and of itself, that's a massive trend. How does that fit into, you know, the overall opportunity to improve health status and improve the consumer experience? I think we're going to see self-insured employers try to get even more involved in the community ecosystem and so on and so forth. We're seeing a movement around supplemental benefits, right? I talked about food earlier. And then we're just seeing non-traditional players like Dollar General hires a very high-powered CMO, uh, you know, Harvard MD MBA. And you think, well, what does Dollar General have to do with healthcare? Well, there's a lot. Dollar General has a lot to do with activities of daily living. And Dollar General is the last mile for a lot of citizens in this country. And it's hard to deliver at the last mile. That's something we've known and learned and known for a long time. So that's, this is a very exciting thing to me. The DCE thing that you mentioned, that's pretty interesting because I think we've got to be careful about changing the rules too quickly. I mean, that, that's part of that regulatory thing. Like if through fee, by, by act of a pen, by fiat, we can change rules and disrupt industries and even disrupt fundamentals, then that's probably not what business is looking for in terms of where do we make our bets and where do we place our investments. So, but anyway, I, I think this is one of the most exciting places, Daniel. And I think what we're going to find is that these insurgents bring, it's like forest and trees, right? They bring a whole different level of thinking to the problem, which is good. Well, Don, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. I've learned a great deal. Private equity investment in healthcare is driving change, and it looks like this is going to be a, a catalyst for the movement to value-based care. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and I hope you're able to come back at some other time and we can continue the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Couldn't be with a better, better group, so I appreciate it. 